It's truly through community that you will hold government accountable in the end because they're not going to listen to one email, but they might listen to a lot of people signing a petition, rallying. The fiscal and economic costs of natural disasters due to climate change will more than triple per year uh, by 2061. A disaster is never natural, it's always unnatural, and it occurs when governments, the market, communities, society have failed to work together. You're listening to the SEI podcast series, brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening, everyone. I'd like to start uh, this evening, as we always do, by acknowledging that the University of Sydney is situated on the unceded stolen lands of the Gadigal people of the OR Nation. Uh, I'm joining you tonight from uh, under the border of Gadigal and Wangolan in Sydney. I'd like to acknowledge all the ancestral lands that folks are joining from and pay respects to elders and their care for country. So thank you everyone for joining us this evening for this panel on reducing climate disaster risk Insights from Communities, Government, and Industry. Tonight's event is hosted by the Sydney Environment Institute, a global leader in multidisciplinary environmental research, and it coincides with tomorrow's uh, UN International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction. So I'm David Schlossberg. I'm the director of the Sydney Environment Institute and a professor of environmental politics at the University of Sydney. Uh, My work, uh, among other things, has uh, focused on Uh, community resilience, climate adaptation. Uh, And over the last couple of years uh, at the Sydney Environment Institute, we've been building quite a large research network on uh, climate disasters and adaptation um, with resilience running through that. And disasters, since the bushfires in particular uh, and COVID and floods has become of more and more interest not just to the communities that are affected, but of course to them, but there's been more and more talk and more and more interest about coordination between communities, government, industry, academics, uh, and others. And tonight's event is really about that kind uh, of insight and interaction about the relationship between different entities in the attempt to reduce the risk of disasters. So we've got four speakers uh, tonight, and we're just going to have a conversation uh, around a few key questions. I do want to say um, before we start that um, Shane Renoff, who's the chair of Resilient Byron uh, and was supposed to join us tonight, is ill, uh, and so he won't be joining us. Uh, We'll just have uh, a smaller discussion and more time um, for your questions at the end. So we're going to start with a very straightforward question uh, about... Um, what the role of government, industry, and communities are in reducing the risk of climate-induced disasters. So we'll start with that general question, and we'll get a bit more specific as we go along. Uh, And we'll start tonight uh, with Professor Rosemary Lister. So Rosemary is the co-leader of the Climate Disaster and Adaptation Cluster at the Sydney Environment Institute. She's a professor of climate and environmental law in the University of Sydney Law School, and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Law. And Rosemary's special interest and research expertise is in climate justice and disaster law. So Rosemary, we'll start with that question. 
Um, what is the role uh, of government, industry, and community in reducing the risk of climate-induced disasters? Well, thanks very much, David. And first, I want to acknowledge that this evening I'm presenting from the lands of the Darug people, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. But I also want to say at the outset that when discussing climate-induced disasters, our attention needs to be focused on the human and on the non-human worlds. I'm sure that we're all still deeply traumatized by the recent disasters that we've experienced, but particularly by the catastrophic loss of animals, native animals and also farm animals in the bushfires and the floods. So in answering the question, the first point that I'd like to make is that the primary responsibility for reducing the risk of disasters falls on the government. And let's just remember that in 2015, the Australian government signed up to three really important interlocking international agreements, the Paris Agreement, the Sendai Framework for Disaster Risk Reduction, and the Sustainable Development Goals. And these three agreements place the obligation on governments, first and foremost, to engage in emissions reduction, climate change adaptation and disaster risk reduction. Now, the roles of industry and community are also important, as we know, but government does have to take the lead. And in fact, the Royal Commission into Natural Disaster Arrangement uh, placed responsibility firmly on the federal government. And I'm going to quote from the report where the commission said making the nation more resilient to natural disasters calls for strategic imagination and big country thinking, a national response and national strategic leadership, possibly through a forum like National Cabinet, as we've had for the COVID response. The federal government and most state governments have been missing in action in the space for decades. But for us to better understand how governments should be reducing disaster risk, I think it's helpful if we think through all four stages of the disaster cycle. Um, the first is prevention. And when I talk about prevention, I mean three things. I mean reducing emissions so as to reduce the risk of extreme weather events, actively engaging in both climate change adaptation and disaster risk reduction. So those are three things. And here with emissions reduction, the government has to place a legally enforceable cap on emissions and it has to stop approving new coal and gas mines. But prevention also means that governments must pass legislation to actually require the undertaking of climate change adaptation and disaster risk reduction at the federal, state and local government levels. So for example, countless commissions and inquiries have pointed out that land use planning is the most potent policy lever to reduce the risk of future disasters. So in other words, as we know, not permitting developments in floodplains, bushfire prone areas and in vulnerable coastal areas. And it may also be necessary for government to build and to properly fund infrastructure to protect communities who are already located there. So such as 
levees on river banks or sea walls. And our biodiversity legislation needs to account for reducing the risk of climate-induced disasters on biodiversity. So the second stage, that's the first stage. The second stage is response and rescue, which is also a responsibility of government. And we've recently witnessed very significant shortcomings by the federal and the New South Wales government to respond effectively to the New South Wales floods and fires. And so many communities were largely left to fend for themselves and also for injured wildlife. The third phase is recovery. And you may have heard this referred to as build back better. Now, this of course links back to phases one and two. There's no point building back in areas already known to be vulnerable and exposed and which the IPCC tells us will be increasingly impacted. So what, for example, is our agreed adaptation strategy for relocating displaced communities, but permanently? All of this that happens in the recovery phase affects the likelihood of effective response and recovery. And so we move on to the fourth uh, phase, which is compensation, or what sometimes is referred to as risk transfer. And this includes three things, government disaster payments, insurance, and tort. Now, tort actions for damages in the space have proved to be incredibly difficult. Uh, insurers, when we're thinking about industry, have a very important role to play in signaling to communities that their insurance premiums are going to rise if they continue to live in harm's way. But then as we know, insurance becomes unaffordable. And so individuals decide either to cancel their insurance or they decide not to take it out in the first place. And when we look at government disaster payments, an area where I've done quite a bit of research, these are woefully inadequate and they can never compensate individuals for the loss. So basically, uh, in the absence of effective and accountable governmental action in all of these four areas, communities and native wildlife are left to fend for themselves. And I'm really delighted that this evening, the New South Wales Auditor General's Office has accepted our invitation to report to us on the extent to which governments actually implement the many recommendations made by the post-disaster inquiries, which they have in fact established to advise them. Because the Auditor General's work is absolutely fundamental to accountability on the part of government. So they have the duty and they need to be accountable for the duties that are imposed upon them. Thanks, David. Thanks for that lovely segue as well, Rosemary. So our second speaker uh, is Claudia Magato. She's the New South Wales Assistant Auditor General at the Audit Office of New South Wales. Claudia has over 15 years experience across Commonwealth and New South Wales government agencies and policy and program development implementation and evaluation. She's also held leadership roles in agencies tasked with providing independent information to the community on the performance of governments, including the COAG Reform Council and the National Mental Health Commission. Uh, 
So Claudia, same question to you, um, which really is, um, what is the role of government? And I guess for you, it is going to be government um, in reducing the risk of climate-induced disasters. Thank you very much. And it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Rosemary, I'll just signpost that I'll come back to your, your comment um, a bit later in the session about, um, you know, I guess, progress of government agencies in responding to inquiries and public inquiries recommendations, um, because it's a, it's a very good one, but it, it kind of comes to the where to from here. But for the answer to the question on the role of governments, um, I'm going to frame my answer in a very audity way and, and look at the look at it through the accountability perspective. And I think really where we start from at the audit office is that it is a very expensive and inefficient use of government money and public resources to constantly be in reaction and response mode when it comes to any government activity. And that includes natural disasters and emergency. So there's obviously a crucial role for governments in dealing with emergencies when they happen. Uh, but the audit office looks at this question from the angle of what are the risks and what is the most effective way to respond to those risks and to wherever possible prevent them from eventuating and also from re-eventuating. So in that sense, the audit office is uniquely positioned really to follow the money on climate preparedness and that's the angle that we take. Um, so just to, to give you an example of that, if you look at the New South Wales government, it manages around $365 billion in physical assets and around 180 billion of those is, is major infrastructure. Um, so we looked at, in our, one of our recent reports, we looked at how effectively government is managing the risks to those assets um, specifically. And if you think about climate risks to those assets alone, uh, fires, flooding, storm damage, hot classrooms, and so on, they're really significant. And then if you think about the services that rely on those assets, like the delivery of education and public transport, that elevates that risk even further. So there's, that means that there's a significant risk to the community if those assets are affected, but there's also a really significant financial risk uh, for the state as well. So to continue uh, that example, one of the fundamental roles of government is to assess and manage those risks to its assets and services, and then to respond to those risks effectively. And that potentially takes in a whole range of activities, but I think, what, what is you know, the point I'm trying to get across here is that risk management is really at the heart of most activity in this area. And then governments have a role in leading the way from there. So that's within and beyond the government sector. So they have the ability to produce climate science and modelling. Uh, they can regulate industry in a way that responds to particular risks uh, or they can create more certainty for industry by being on the front foot with planning. Uh, they can legislate for things such as land use planning that can, that's consistent with adaptive principles, as you were referring to re before, Rosemary, uh, or climate, reduction climate risk reduction principles. Uh, but this all starts with an assessment of risk and an effective response from the outset. Uh, in terms of the, the role for the community, and I guess industry as well, speaking purely from the perspective of an auditor on this one, I think what we aim to do is equip the parliament and communities with information and shed light on what's happening in particular areas so that they can participate in the important process of holding governments to account 
for how well they're doing these things. So there's an important transparency piece uh, in the role of government in that community can't participate in important discussions about what are their priorities uh, for climate risk reduction and, and responding to climate induced disasters if there's no information on the public record about what the government's plan is and how they're, they're tracking to that plan. So that's where the audit office can come in to provide that transparency and accountability as well. Great, thanks Claudia for that intro. Um, an overview. So we're going to turn now uh, a bit more to the community experience and uh, I'll introduce Dr. Anna Sturman, who's a postdoctoral research fellow uh, on an Australian government funded project. Uh, it's a bushfire recovery project, developing systems and capacities to protect animals in catastrophic fires, um, working with partner organizations across uh, the Shoalhaven, including the Shoalhaven City Council. Anna's research focus is on bringing historical materialist critiques of nature and value and the role of the state to bear on contemporary climate change discussions, uh, particular with, uh, particularly with regards to agrarian and rural transformations. And this project really is sort of interestingly at the intersection of Anna's previous work uh, and, um, and disaster. So Anna, um, let's turn to the community question, right? So what can communities do to Thanks, reduce... And I would like to begin by acknowledging that I'm actually on campus right now, so on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And of course, specifically to the elders of the land that I'm about to talk about, uh, the Shoalhaven. So maybe as an intro to some more specific answers to the question, I'll just quickly outline the project that we're working on with the Shoalhaven City Council. Uh, so we are examining how people mobilized, spontaneously organized to protect animals during that catastrophic bushfire season. Uh, so wildlife, domestic animals, both companion and larger, uh, larger animals like horses, and then farm animals as well, so primarily livestock. And we're seeking to understand how the spontaneous organizing happened sort of in the vacuum of... Uh, of assistance that occurred at the time um, and basically piece together the network maps of how people coordinated, what they used, what worked, what didn't work, what resources would have helped them uh, and, and build a picture of how communities are actually in real time responding to these catastrophic events that we talk about often in the abstract so that we can uh, firstly uh, provide those resources back to the communities that have been a part of building them so they can use them in the future, but also so that we can uh, provide them to other Australian communities and communities around the world, because we really are in the midst of it now. It's happening. Uh, and so every little bit of iterative counsel that we can give each other and ourselves is useful. So clearly uh, reducing climate disaster risk is a huge question and I don't think any individual community feels like they have the answers to that. But what has come through very, very strongly from the research thus far from talking to the people across the Shoalhaven is that actually having a sense of community and knowing the people around you, uh, knowing your neighbours, but knowing the people who work in the various local industries, at the local farm sheds, at the local cafes, the local 
agriculture co-ops and so on is really foundational to being able to mobilize those networks and build new networks in times of crisis. And these are iterative and Obviously, since the bushfires, we've had a global pandemic and then flooding. <laughs> and these disasters are going to continue compounding and the, the crises are going to continue compounding on each other. So the existing networks are, are really, really important, whether they're mobilized through being physically proximate to each other or through tools like Facebook, through phones, through websites, through donation sites, and so on. Um, and I think it's a really interesting uh, sort of way to enter the conversation about how stretched everyone is, not just in the bushfire impacted communities, but all across Australia and the world, people are really at their wits end. There's a real socioeconomic crisis background to everything. So when we're thinking about how to reduce the risk of things going horribly wrong in disasters, we need to be thinking about the whole piece of building more secure communities with really secure housing, food, education, and so on. But I promised David I wouldn't get too far out of the scope of the conversation today. So uh, I will leave that one there. Um, I think that's probably a good start. And then when we get into the what needs to change, I might have a little bit more to offer. I will come back to that. And that is the next question. It really is. So that's, that's a good setup of what various responsibilities are and what different entities are doing mostly at the state level and the local community level. Um, but now the question is, what needs to change um, in order to address disaster risk reduction more thoroughly? And crucially, it's easy to say in some ways what needs to change, but the key question here um, is what are the barriers um, to those necessary changes as well? So Rosemary, why don't we start with you again? Yeah, uh, given what I said earlier in my introduction, I think it would be no surprise to know that I'm going to respond by saying that almost everything um, needs to change. And one of the most significant barriers that we have had in Australia is government's complete obsession over at least 25 years with this ideology of neoliberalism and small government, that really it's not really the government's responsibility to do much. It's up to community, it's up to business and so on to get on with it, do what they can, but the government is there really uh, to regulate and not to regulate very much at all. So that's been a major barrier as well as the climate denialism that we have had associated uh, with government. Now, hopefully, both of these are reduced to some extent, although, of course, the Labour government has been very wedded to neoliberalism and deregulation as well. So we need to think about that as a very significant uh, barrier. So what needs, needs to change is that, uh, given what I've said, governments desperately and urgently have to commit themselves to taking action with respect to all of those four stages of a disaster. And all of the inquiries and recommendations which I have read make very detailed recommendations on, first of all, how governance arrangements have to change as between the federal, the state and local governments, as well as the need for more interagency cooperation across the levels of government and also 
the governance of some of the key response agencies like the SES and the RFS. So there, there's a huge governance project that uh, needs to be followed through. But federal government, as I've said, um, is key to disaster risk reduction. And the federal government can engage in a number of ways, but funding is a really important part of engaging in prevention and preparedness. And the trouble is, is that this funding is almost never adequately budgeted for by the federal government, despite the very significant risks which we know these uh, climate-induced disasters are going to pose for the country, for communities, and for the budget. So also, governments cannot continue to leave the victims of disaster in ongoing states of homelessness, where they have to rely on poverty level government disaster payments. So we need better funding arrangements for the victims of disaster as well. And as the State of the Environment report um, shows, uh, there are many ways in which government needs to respond to reduce the vulnerability and the exposure of our biodiversity to climate change, because as we know, our biodiversity is in a parlous state anyway, and the impacts of disaster only just increase that vulnerability and exposure. But one of the points that I, I want to talk about a bit more is the fact that we need to overhaul our insurance arrangements as well. And when I look at what other countries are doing, I think that we can find examples which may be influential or inspiring. So for example, in some European countries, they have compulsory insurance on all home and context policies for fire and for flood, whether or not people are actually living in high risk areas. And basically here, homeowners are standing in solidarity with affected communities on the understanding that they may also one day need assistance when disaster strikes them unexpectedly. So that's one model. Um, another model is one that has been taken up by the UK after their catastrophic winter floods in 2014. And they've set up a government insurance industry partnership called Flood Re. And this is a 25 year agreement between insurers and the government where insurers can gradually increase insurance premiums, but only on the condition that the government has done its job of actually engaging in infrastructural disaster risk reduction. So building the infrastructure that will you know, protect those communities at risk. Now, it's been in the news quite a bit where others have called on the government to be the reinsurer of disasters. So for example, where disasters push individual insurers beyond their limits to respond. And this happens where significant numbers of people are impacted in a specific area and many of them are uninsured. So we saw this happen in the 2010 Queensland flood where basically Suncorp, the major insurer declared that the towns of Emerald and Roma would be uninsurable because too many people weren't insured. And also specifically they said they weren't gonna come back in until the local council had constructed the levies that were needed. 
And the upshot of the Queensland floods was that we were all taxed 1.5% because neither the federal nor the Queensland governments had budgeted for the fact that there may be one of these catastrophic um, disasters. And um, if we look to the US that is very familiar with climate-induced disasters, they have a scheme where the US government basically offers subsidized insurance premiums, but again, there's an obligation on communities to agree uh, and with their local council to conduct infrastructural solutions as well. So there are so many options out there differently from what we do in Australia, but we just haven't had the discussion, a real discussion about uh, affordability of insurance. And I know that after the Queensland floods, the then Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, uh, first of all, set up a flood insurance review commission, but then she also put up $100 million to establish an insurance commission. And her brief to that commission was to get involved with thinking carefully and clearly about this problem of uh, uninsurance in disaster prone areas. So unfortunately that commission was axed when Tony Abbott um, became prime minister. And so we've wasted more than a decade now not discussing insurance and its relationship with disaster risk reduction because potentially it has a very important role to play as well. So I think that uh, everything needs to change, but I've just picked on just a few of the things that need specifically to um, get more of our attention. But I think that's that's really helpful, um, Rosemary, and it's really interesting to hear about using insurance for disaster risk reduction up front. We, you know, we so often think about insurance as what happens after the disaster, um, but it certainly is useful uh, as a way to prevent it as well. Um, Claudia, to you, um, just in terms of what needs to change, but importantly, what the barriers are to that change. Thanks. So if I approach this question in a similar way um, as I did the first one, thinking about the role of government in risk management, um, I think, you know, I, I outlined in my first answer some of the should do's uh, when it comes to approaching climate risk from this perspective. But given where we are now and the increasing frequency and impact of these events, uh, I think we'd consider that assessing and responding to climate risks now really needs to be business as usual risk management across the government sector. So agencies need to be doing this consistently. They need to be thinking about how they apply climate risk settings to their own contexts in terms of service delivery and in terms of the tolerance uh, of the community to accepting certain risks as well. Um, so it's fair to say from our work that that is patchy. Um, to do this, though, agencies do need support. They need support with science. They need support with uh, modelling of particular impacts in particular geographics, geographical areas in New South Wales, for example. They need guidance and, and very importantly, they need accountability mechanisms as well. Um, so we've made some recommendations in our climate risk report about how central government can do some of this in New South Wales. I think in terms of what also needs to change, uh, we wanna see some enhancements in the learning improvement culture, learning and improvement culture across government, specifically in emergency preparedness management and responses as well. 
Um, so emergency ma management mechanisms in New South Wales have been going virtually non-stop for the last three years, uh, beginning with the black summer bushfires and then going straight into COVID-19 and then flooding and so on. And that is, that is tough for government and it's important to recognise and acknowledge those efforts. Um, but there's potential for these events to, to sadly continue to pile up uh, without agencies taking opportunities to reflect and learn and implement improvements um, from the learnings. Um, so an obvious first step is taking stop, stock of what's happened before and, an, on, and conducting an honest and transparent reflection on what could have been done better. And we've noted in our reports, including one on how emergency response agencies address inquiry recommendations, that there's not always that thoroughness, diligence and consistency in how agencies take up and implement recommendations to improve their responses to emergency events. Uh, so in a, our report on addressing public inquiry recommendations, we looked at 191 recommendations that were made from 17 public inquiries across five frontline agencies. And that took in inquiries like coronial inquests, parliamentary inquiries, and other independent inquiries. And we found that arrangements to address these inquiries had important and consistent gaps. And this was around actually verifying that the recommendation had been implemented as intended. So there's that old tick and flick behavior that sometimes comes in, allocating priority through milestones. And then coming back to the transparency piece again, publicly reporting, telling the community the status of actions to address them so that they can participate in that process of deciding whether that's sufficient. And this can sometimes be understandably a significant amount of work, particularly for frontline agencies. Fireys want to be out fighting fires and not necessarily writing reports on how they're responding to government inquiries. But the coda to that is that the concept of unprecedented is, is getting a little worn, I think, at this point in time. We've heard that a lot over the past few years, and I think it's losing currency and potentially very serious future events will now have very serious precedents. And so it will be up to governments to demonstrate that they've learned, that they've adopted that learning culture, and that they've applied all of the learnings that they can from these precedents uh, to future events as well. No, I think that's an excellent point that unprecedented is no longer an excuse because things may be unprecedented, but they're certainly not unpredicted. Uh, we know we know exactly what's coming. Um, Anna, uh, to you, uh, just being out in the community, I know you've you've been in the Shoalhaven, you've been talking to people um, uh, in communities who've been thoroughly affected by fires. Um, what's the perspective there about what needs to change and what the barriers are to that change? Thanks, David. Yeah, it's been um, a bit of an emotional time, actually, <laughs> talking to people, as of course it is. But a couple of the things that have come through really strongly, repeatedly from a number of people have been the communities that mobilised around the specific tasks of protecting animals during and following the bushfires, but also protecting each other and the rest of the community. Um, so many people brought so many skills to those mobilisations. 
So, you know, in one particular case in one area, really early on in the bushfire season, a meeting was called at a local pub and people found out about it via Facebook, via phone calls, text messages, emails and so on. And everybody turned up self-identified what skills they could bring to the table, whether that was being really good at logistics because that was their day job, whether it was looking after kids, making food, doing manual labor, what it, driving, whatever whatever it was, people self-identified how they could help and then they began organizing themselves around what they needed to do and what they were best at. And they achieved some incredible, incredible things. And the barriers to them being able to scale up and help each other further were basically running out of resources. And part of that was because donations went to specific places and then didn't filter through to communities doing work. But Part of it was just simply like, you know, in an emergency, time is very short and the work to do is a lot and you just have to get it done in the moment and you don't always have access to, uh, you know, online donations or things in the moment. And that was actually another barrier that people talked about repeatedly is something they, they wanted us to help figure out processes for other groups in the future, how to, you know, get a tax file, get an ABN, be able to, you know, set up a give a little page or whatever and not be terrified by the various requirements um, and reporting requirements and board requirements and so on that come in at different stages of those processes. But I think this all, um, and that's, you know, that's one piece of the things that people want. Resources um, for communities who are self-mobilizing to do what they need to do without needing to wait for formal government structures to tick things off or give the okay. Just give us the stuff and we'll go and do it. And I think this leads really nicely to a broader theme that's emerging, which is all of the work that's been going on to repair these environments and these communities has been going on off the backs of individuals in the communities, really strong people who are who are waver who are having a really hard time, who are drained. And they know that a lot of skills are going to be needed for the next rounds of disasters. Quote unquote green jobs. Caring for animals, regenerating the bush, regenerating towns, looking after people, these are all green jobs. And I think it's really important as inevitably the government does start expanding after years of austerity and we start thinking about how to coordinate all of that stuff, that we retain the community direction and the grassroots direction, which has been proven to be incredible through these disasters. So instead of trying to over-formalize it and impose top-down structures to be like, how are the groups that are mobilized within disasters responding? How can we help them? How can we resource them, finance them, give them what they need to keep going, but also make sure that, you know, it doesn't fall on the shoulders of one or two people and that we continue building communities and community spirit and ability. It's a bit of a rambly response, but hopefully it gives a bit of a flavor of, of what we've been hearing about. Not a rambly response at all, very real response. And I'm sure if Jean was here, he'd be saying the exact same thing about action uh, and response to disaster up in the Northern Rivers. Um, we are going to move to questions in just a few minutes. I think the Q&A is still empty, so people get to it and give us some questions that you'd like us to answer. But before we get to that, um, when we first started thinking about organizing this session, it uh, was uh, Rosemary's idea. Thank you, Rosemary. Uh, and Professor Dale Dominey Howes, who works with us at the University of Sydney. And Dale suggested um, this question that Claudia, you alluded to, 
um, which is that um, things are changing. Uh, we know what's coming. There, there are risks, and there are risks that um, we are not going to be able to prevent. I mean, there is disaster risk reduction as opposed to um, prevention. So the question that Dale wanted to ask, and I think it's a really good one, is what do we need to change in terms of accepting risks associated with climate change? Um, how much is out there that we just have to get used to? Um, because as much as, Rosemary, um, you talked about uh, you know, reducing emissions, uh, getting rid of fossil fuels, as fast as we do that, we've already um, increased the disasters that we're experiencing. We're already living with increased risk. Uh, and so what is it that we might have to get used to? Rosemary, do you want to start? Yeah. Um, so I think we need quite a nuanced response to this because I think there are dangers in just accepting that all of this is going to happen. So I'm going to talk about the fact that, yes, of course, we know the sixth assessment report by the IPCC has told has given us even more dire warnings about climate change. The other thing that the IPCC has told us is that there are serious limits to adaptation and, and to disaster risk uh, as well. But I don't think that we should accept the fact that we're going to continue to have more of these climate-induced disasters, because I really object to the way in which these disasters are referred to as natural disasters. They're not natural. So as the World Bank told us a long time ago, in 2010, they basically said we're always going to have the hazards. And in our case, we're talking about climate-induced hazards. But what they emphasize is that a disaster is never natural, it's always unnatural, and it occurs when governments, the market, communities, society have failed to work together um, in the ways that they need to. So, as I've said, I think we should still insist that governments take the lead on this, while, of course, we recognize the very important roles that um, other elements of, of civil society play. So I don't think we should just um, accept that we're going to have these continuing disasters because then we'll give up the political fight to force governments to engage effectively in all of these stages of the disaster. But I think what we do need to have a conversation about is this really important concept of loss and damage. And I don't think we do a good enough job of thinking about that at the moment because loss from a disaster means that the disaster may be so overwhelming that things are going to be lost forever. So, for example, it may be that certain places where we have lived will be lost to us because we can no longer live there, even though, of course, most people want to go home after a disaster. And what about the habitat that was lost in the summer bushfires? You know, is its full functionality lost forever? And then there are other kinds of losses that we barely ever talk about, which are the so-called non-economic losses, the loss of community, the loss of culture and heritage, the loss of physical and mental health and well-being. So how should we have a discussion about actual loss. And the first thing we need to ask ourselves is whether or not loss is actually ever acceptable. 
Okay, so that's a discussion. Now, damage, on the other hand, is something that's recoverable. So we can rebuild, we can fix infrastructure, we can compensate for certain kinds of damage, but I think we need to have a national discussion about loss and damage. Um, but because the question uh, is, you know, has anything changed, I do want to give some quite optimistic responses to that, in that since the bushfires and the commission, we've got um, uh, an Australian climate security risk analysis has been commissioned by um, the Albanese government. We've got a new national adaptation policy office, which we didn't have until this year a new national emergency management resilience and recovery agency. Treasury has been instructed to start modeling, to, to commence uh, modeling the impacts of climate change because it was stopped from doing that. Um, in 2021, we had the First Nations dialogue on climate justice. A big piece of work has been done on electricity sector vulnerability to climate change. And we know how important it is that the lights don't go off and that we don't lose uh, telecommunications during disaster. There's a whole new Australian climate service to give us that information about the risks that we face. We also have a national Australian flood risk portal for all levels of government to be using for their planning purposes and um but we don't yet have a national bushfire database and then finally um in 2020 legislation was introduced that formally allows the prime minister to declare a national emergency and to call in the adf and of course that has been one of the areas that has been very contentious and of course, this still depends on the political will of the Prime Minister to do that. But I think that there's a big discussion to be had, um, but there are things that are starting to happen um, in Australia. And I think that, that it's an encouraging, at least in the first instance. Yeah, certainly the atmosphere is a little different than it was 10 years ago. I, I absolutely agree there. Um, I'm not suggesting that we um, just sit and accept all risks, Rosemary, you know that, but let's turn, yeah, no, <laughs> let's, let's turn to, to Claudia to ask that question because um, the, it, it seems risk is inevitable uh, now and there is this question uh, of, uh, of how and if we accept some, for example, as, as you're talking about, about dealing with loss on the one hand or thinking about a word we've not raised yet, thinking about retreat from places. Um, so, Claudia, what, what do you think uh, about uh, acceptance of risk? Um, well, I'll start with what I think has changed in this space. And I, and I think, you know, taking on Rosemary's earlier comments about, you know, government, government inaction for a long time, I think what's been happening in New South Wales is that, that the public sector has, you know, quietly been moving forward through existing governance arrangements to set up structures that enable um, you know, consideration of risks and how we're going to, to live with them. Um, so depending on the time horizon for the question about what's changed recently in that, I think that's a pretty significant change. And for New South Wales, this looks like strategy planning and as I mentioned, some early governance arrangement to move things forward. It also looks like agencies starting now to take stock of more tangible risks and thinking about what to do next. 
And New South Wales Treasury, for example, has crystallised that risk in financial terms and said that the fiscal and economic costs of natural disasters due to climate change will more than triple per year uh, by 2061. So with that, armed, so armed with that information, the community can then have a role in deciding whether that's an acceptable threshold um, and how much of that cost we're, we're willing to tolerate. Um, similarly, planning industry and environment have set out some leading practices for responding to climate risks and that, that includes using climate projections well, doing good climate risks, risk assessments and implementing adaption plans. And they've also had um, climate projections uh, released since 2014 for the use of the wider public service in, in planning and adapting to risk. Um, so being as clear on, on what agencies should be doing as that is, is a key change. But in terms, in terms of what, what could still change in how we live with risk, um, I'm, I'm going to contradict Rosemary a little bit and say I think we need a climate change action adaption plan for New South Wales that actually helps agencies do the things that I've been talking about this evening and sets up the framework for wider industry and community engagement. And it's really, it's not necessarily about accepting a fait accompli, but more being transparent about what you propose to do and testing those thresholds uh, with the community. And the New South Wales government committed to delivering an adaption plan in 2017. Other states and territories have them, um, but the, our government has pushed them out, have pushed out the timeline on this to, to 2023. Uh, so government-led adaption planning is potentially a fundamental process for communities to engage with that conversation from a government service delivery perspective at least. Um, because it has the potential to make some of those threshold questions more tangible and makes the discussions about priorities more transparent. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. And it was quite disappointing to see that um, fairly vague uh, adaptation policy, given that New South Wales used to have uh, really one of the leading uh, agencies around, uh, around adaptation. And, and actually across Australia, Australia was well known mainly because we didn't want to do anything on mitigation and so we were focusing on adaptation but still we were world leading until that was taken apart over the last decade. Um, Anna on this question of risk um, this is what you've been out talking to people about uh, the last few weeks so what are people thinking in terms of that um, that idea of coming to terms with the reality uh, of ongoing risk? There's a very strong sense that things have to change or things are going to get really bad for the most, going to get worse for the most vulnerable. But what's been really interesting, and one participant in particular, and I didn't expect to come across this conversation, and I got really excited when I did, um, she said the being able to deal with what's happened with the, the bushfires and then the pandemic and the flooding, um, and this person, their, um, their child had not been let into a specific counselling mechanism that had been set up for kids who'd gone through the bushfires. Um, and they said, so we didn't make it into that and that's having compounding effects on education and that has compounding effects on my partner and I and then on our ability to do our jobs and then our ability to look after the animals and be part of community and all of these things. And it's interesting seeing people connecting all of the stuff together and being like no single thing is going to fix all of those things all of those things have to be thought about together and we are increasingly at risk of just total so like personal collapse 
if we don't if we don't think about the mechanisms by which we fight back along those axes so expanding education teachers are striking at the moment <laughs> getting affordable housing people are starting to fight for that too there were housing development fights in the Shoalhaven in the wake of the bushfires like one or two pieces of land that weren't affected that a developer had you know snapped up years ago and all of a sudden realized was going to be very valuable tried to develop it the community said no mobilized shut it down people are starting to think about how they connect the dots connect their forms of organizing and banding together and supporting each other to move through these compounding crises so i think people know that the risk will keep growing but they also are feeling empowered to more or less degrees by what they've been able to achieve thus far with each other, which is honestly incredible. And I'm so privileged to get to talk to people about it. Um, Just amazing. That's fantastic. And I'm looking forward to hearing more about that project. So (laughs) look, our audience has come through. Um, There are quite a few questions uh, here. So I'm going to go through them uh, one at a time. I suggest, uh, because we've got about 15 or so minutes left, that we just try and do some quick fire through these questions and don't spend too much time on anyone. Um, and I will just let anyone who wants to uh, attack them uh, come and do that. So, um, how do, so how do we as a community stay aware of what the government is changing in regards to reducing or formalizing disaster responses? How do we raise more awareness to keep the government accountable? Oh, there's that accountable question. I guess that goes to you, Claudia. Um, yeah, great, great question. But I'll answer it from the, the narrow perspective of the audit office and, and just say, you know, if, you, if you're interested in government accountability in, in this space, um, you know, read, read our reports. I think that's a, a great um, starting point. I think governments don't necessarily um, have the impetus to be transparent about what they're doing in this space. Um, and that's you know, where we come in, in terms of holding government account um, for their activity. Anyone else on that one? No, I was just going to jump in with the like, meet your neighbours, join your organisations, join your union, (laughs) join your community gardening patch, talk to people. It's truly through community that you will hold government accountable in the end, because they're not going to listen to one email, but they might listen to a lot of people signing a petition, rallying, etc. And as you said, and earlier, information is power, right? So yeah, information exactly. into that process is so important. Exactly. Um, next question. I think I'll throw this to you, Rosemary. What direction can law and policy take in regards to codifying the protection of environment as a natural, natural, national, and natural interest? Uh, it's a public good question. So what we can, what can we do to make protection of environment a public good? Yeah. I mean, I. Um... We've obviously had discussions about this on a number of levels, but from a disaster perspective, as I was saying in my presentation, you actually need legislation to force all levels of government and and agencies within government to do the sort of work that Claudia was talking about, Um, you know, preparedness. So every single agency should be required to engage in preparedness. And just to talk about adaptation and disaster risk reduction for a moment, in 2015, I was a a member of one of a three-member committee that was set up to review the Victorian Climate Change Act. And our job was to ensure that Victoria uh, would become a leader on climate change in the world. And 
So the Victorian Climate Change Act actually requires government agencies to do that work and they get audited to see whether or not they've done that work on adaptation and disaster risk reduction. So that is something that I think we already have an example um, of. And slowly but surely, since the act was passed in 2017, the Victorian government has been implementing aspects of these obligations that are written into the law. But with regard to the environment, of course, thankfully, the State of Environment report has been released. We've got the Samuel Review, and Minister Plibersek is beginning the discussion about how we need to change the Federal Environment Act. And I think that we're probably going to see some quite dramatic changes. I mean, one of my colleagues says that the whole act needs to be scrapped and we need to start again because things have changed a lot since 1999. So, yeah, I think that law is a very important uh, pathway for seeing the kinds of changes that we need. And that actually is a very nice segue again, Rosemary, to the next question. It's pitched to Anna and um, Anna can answer, but I think you would want to as well. Um, Rosemary. So the question is, is there a role for the EBPC Act uh, and a climate trigger? I mean, basically asking if there's a role for the new legislation that we know well, that is either happening or is coming, um, assessing the climate impacts of projects, prohibiting large projects, um, emissions, for example, as they are likely to increase the risk of bushfires or floods, an impact on natural and cultural heritage. With EBPC, I, I think it would also be a question of land use, right? So is it possible to use? Is there a role for the change uh, of these laws um, or the development of new policies uh, in disaster risk reduction in addition to, you know, the, the, the specifics of the, the laws themselves? First of all, let me say that I think that it's absolutely critically important that we do have the federal government involved in developments and in planning, because as we know from the history, uh, Often a state government will approve something because they have the incentive, they want the, the funds, they want the money. Um, and so they permit developments to go ahead. And the federal government then comes in to take a second look at the development from their perspective. And then if they are an effective environmental protection government, then they can have a second look. And if they don't approve it, then it can't go ahead. So I think it's very important. Um, with regard to climate change, the climate change trigger is one thing. Now, I remember when a climate change trigger was put up in draft form when Robert Hill was the Minister for the Environment. So we're going back 20 or more years. And that was circulated around the states and then it was just dropped very quietly. So a climate change trigger is important because it will have a look at the volume of greenhouse gases from a development like a coal or a coal seam gas mine. So that's really important. But actually, we need a trigger that looks at the impact of climate change on the development itself, because that is also a key part of thinking about disaster risk reduction and climate change adaptation. So, yeah. So I, I think that the federal government has got a, a very important role and, and it needs to step back into that space. The next question is, is one we hear a, a, a lot, really. So the, this example is around Lake Macquarie. The local government updated uh, the assessment of lakeside properties to the risk of flooding due to sea level rise. The affected communities were unhappy 
as they considered this information would affect the value of their properties. Um, so the economy appears to always overrule common sense. How do we move past those issues? Anyone there on the reality of uh, property price decline? Anna. Yeah. <laughs> and this is reaching into my sort of personal research stuff as opposed to necessarily the project I'm on at the moment. But for this kind of thing, we really have to talk about a comprehensive program of action that expands the state in certain ways, rearticulates it in others, and considers basically the massive transfer of risk, the socialization of risk for all of this adaptation into the state form may be paid for by expropriating some stuff that needs to be taken away from massive corporations or something. Because this happened in New Zealand I, I when I was still living there years ago now. I remember a local council tried to um, rezone an area that was going to be underwater in the next 10 years. And a woman I worked with was so mad. She said, my partner just lost the value of their property because of that. And I was like, well, do you want it to pass to the next unsuspecting person? How is that going to work? And no one has answered that question, I think, in a good way, aside from to say we need a consolidation of risk, we need to accept that this is something that needs to happen, and for that we need a programmatic response. And I think we push for that through the labor movement, environmental movements, housing movements, social justice movements, figuring out a program for Australia, which is a massive answer that I hope was of some use. Um, talk to me about it another time. I'd love to talk to you whoever asked that question. Anyone else on that property price question? Well, well, I might just intervene for a moment to say that, of course, all regulation affects property. And we know that private property is one of the most, you know, sort of protected, sacred of our legal rights. And so anyone, like, if you're going to live on the coast, the council is going to want to put a certificate on your land title to say that you're living in a vulnerable area. And nobody wants that to happen. Developers buy huge blocks of land in the coastal zone to develop, and they want to cut it up into 60 blocks and sell it. And then state government comes along and says, but we're going to zone that vulnerable. And so it just, this, this intersection between property and, uh, and regulation, climate change regulation, is one that has been going on for a long time, and I don't know when it's, and how really it can come uh, to an end, right, because it's there and it's going to be very hotly contested for, forever, really. Claudia, you were going to speak to that as well. Oh, it's, just, uh, it's, a, it's an intractable problem and a really difficult one for local councils to deal with on their own, basically. They're not equipped to do that and they're certainly not equipped with information and global updated global land use planning rules from the New South Wales government to, to assist um, in that conversation. So I, I would just would acknowledge that that's a really tough call for councils, particularly co coastal councils, to be dealing with. Can I jump in with one final thought? And absolutely, and it's part of what Rosemary was talking about early with the austerity, the state austerity that's been in place for many years. So all the responsibility devolved to local councils, none of the resources to to deal with any of these problems. So it's it's a it's a great question. So I think we've touched. There was another question on this sort of individual um, self interested response, but I think we've really touched on this this question of that 
the problem with the individualized response and the necessity of dealing um, more community-wide or sector-wide. So the next question is about biodiversity. Um, and um, it seems to me biodiversity loss is being very underrepresented by the Australian government and media in regards to the impact of fires and floods. This gets to the non-human question you raised earlier, Rosemary. Are there any impactful science-based ecological surveys on native population recovery and how we as a community can aid in helping to maintain our endemic biodiversity? I have one example from the Shoalhaven. Uh, you can look up BirdLife Shoalhaven. They've been doing incredible work, uh, members of the community going out and basically um, doing the citizen science to with people who are familiar with the ecologies, the socio-ecologies, figuring out where things are at and how biodiversity has been impacted by the bushfires. Um, yeah, once again, BirdLife Shoalhaven is one example of somewhere you could start. How do we get to the point where all levels of government uh, work together to not only promote common policies to minimize climate change, but also uh, demand a collective and broader sharing of risk and perhaps a centralized government insurance for those directly affected by floods, bushfires, etc. A really good question, that idea of collectivizing risk. Uh, I think, you, I mean, it's it starts with uh, accountability and government, the way that government funding is is kind of set up is that, you know, appropriation, appropriations are made by ministers to particular departments to do particular things. Education gets its budget, transport gets its budget. And so all joined up government, um, you know, can be difficult in this space if uh, education is grappling with the, um, you know, the the problem of how it air conditions all its classrooms in New South Wales and transports grappling with the problem of how uh, it, uh, you know, remediates all the roads that have been affected by floods. You can't necessarily, those, those agencies account, are accountable to do those things and you can't necessarily expect them to kind of share that risk around because the structure isn't there. So you need the structures in place and that's, you know, central policy, whole of government policy and the, the money flows in that way. We've seen that recently in other types of reforms, for example, reforms to out of home care for, for children. So we know it is possible to do that kind of joined up government, whole of government response to a really wicked problem like climate change. But essentially, if you can't follow the money, um, agencies aren't accountable to, to kind of working together on common policies, then they're not incentivized to do it. And so that needs to change in order for that to happen. Yeah, I think that we do have a good example, even though perhaps now we might say that the experiment has failed. But back in the day, in 1994, when COAG, the Commonwealth and the state governments got together to reform water resource management, they basically agreed, as they often do in the environmental space, uh, they agreed that they would implement this massive program of water reform. And what the federal government did was that they said, well, we will pay you. And they've called national competition policy payments. We will pay you if you agree to change all of your water legislation to make it more sustainable. And then what they did was that they got the National Competition Council to audit them on a fairly regular basis to see whether or not they'd done what they were supposed to do in terms of reforming their water law. And if they hadn't done it, 
the federal government would say, well, we, we're withholding the payment. You're not going to get your next tranche of payment. So, you know, in these ways, if they want to work together, there are examples of where the federal and state governments have, have worked well together, at least in implementing those reforms. Whether the reforms themselves have delivered the, the outcomes we hope for is a different question. Great, thanks. So we're almost at close. Uh, we've got a question that is about what we always get, and we always have to answer this. Um, it's the, do we have any suggestions for how folks might get involved and put our strengths to good use? So I want everybody to do that very quickly. And my response to that one is we always think about that in a very individualistic way. Uh, you know, what can I do? Um, but my answer to that question is put pressure on governments at every level um, to reduce risk on the front end uh, and to do actual large-scale collective coordinated adaptation planning uh, on the other. So it's pressure on government for me. Rosemary, quick response? I'm exactly the same. Just join up, join getup350.org. Just join every single organization that puts out calls for action and do the actions that you're called upon. Claudia? Um, ask for information if you want to know something and it's not available and not on the public record, uh, but it's of interest to you, you're, you're entitled to that information. So ask for information and, and demand to receive it through a GIPA request or writing to your Member of Parliament, demand to know what's going on. Excellent. And Anna? Join your union, talk to your neighbour. Honestly, three people who are on the phone to each other coordinated over one specific task is more effective than... 10 people each pursuing one small thing if you can talk to people if you can coordinate it's a really good place to start even if it's not as big as you'd like to be at the beginning everything starts small and information is fantastic and knowing how to press the levers of government is great start with community excellent thanks very much so i want to thank uh rosemary lister and claudia magato and anna sturman um, for um, their great responses to these questions. Uh, I want to thank uh, our, um, our incredible event organizer, uh, Genevieve Wright, for her work in pulling this all together. I want to thank the audience, of course, for joining us and for your great questions. Stay involved, stay up to date. Um, and speaking of staying up to date, stay up to date with SEI's events as well, Sydney Environment Institute, subscribe to our monthly newsletter, Follow us on socials. I suspect that is all in the chat. Um, uh, we'll have a number uh, of events uh, around the disaster space uh, that comes out of this new uh, climate disaster and adaptation research cluster that we have. Uh, we look forward to more uh, of these. Uh, and thanks for your time. Thanks for your input. Thanks for your questions. Thanks for your work. Take care, everyone.